Greetings, everyone. It is Nick Bradley here, and welcome to Scale Up for another week. Now, I'm delighted to say that joining me on the mic today is Brandon Steiner. Now, Brandon is an author, a speaker, a media personality, but he is best known for the impact and the influence that he has made on the world of sport over many decades. Now, what we're going to get into today is some amazing storytelling. We're going to talk about how Brandon grew up on the streets of Brooklyn as a poor kid, how he learnt entrepreneurship through some very interesting turns of events, the values that he got from his family and specifically his mother, and the fact that when he was a 14-year-old, he created the Everything Bagel. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's worth a Google. You can certainly go into a Starbucks in pretty much any store in the US and you can order one of these things with cream cheese and it is absolutely delicious. Now, we're not going to talk about that today, though. What we are going to talk about today, though, is lessons, leadership lessons specifically from the world of sport. And in fact, Brandon published his first book of the same title, which got him to become a guest lecturer at some of the top business schools in the world, including the Harvard Business School. We're going to talk about leadership and its complexities. We're going to talk about the difference between leadership and management. We're going to talk about what we can learn on the field of sport that can certainly be applied to the business boardroom. And most importantly, we're going to talk about how helping other people get better is actually one of the most important ways that you can become valuable. If you're going to go do it, be the best that ever was. And in order to do that, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. But don't don't start crying about your hardships if you want to be really great one day. So sit back, relax, enjoy some master storytelling. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Brandon Steiner. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for another week. Today, I am delighted to have on the show with me, Brandon Steiner. Brandon, welcome. Welcome. Nice to be there and nice to be here. Excellent. I feel like I'm in both places. That's the beauty of today's world. You know? It is. We can connect from, I'm in the UK. I'm about two hours north of London. Are you in, where are you in New York or Brooklyn? Oh boy. Spoken like a true non-New Yorker. I'm in, I'm in Westchester. Okay. Brooklyn is his own city. I have run so the New York Marathon, good. Brandon. So don't worry. I, I, I have run the, you know, all around the place. So I have been to Brooklyn. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, you got it. Yeah, I get, it. I get it. I knew it was going to be sensitive because I was reading about. Didn't you um, invent the everything bagel? Oh, uh, we'll come back to that. Yeah, I did. That's a long story, but yeah, we can always get into that. But it's an interesting story. It's in my second. It's in my last book. I think I talked about okay. that. Yeah, I did think that was funny. I mean, my wife was quite thrilled when she heard that because she loves them. Well, listen. So, so obviously we've we've worked out. I don't know much about New York or the difference between Brooklyn, New York, or any of that. But let's let's pass on that and talk about your career and what you've done. Let's have the listeners of my show get to know you a bit. So, where where did it all begin? It all began in Brooklyn. Um, you know, go. hustling. You know, I mean, that's we were back and forth. And I've written three books. We were back and forth on the second book because they wanted to call it the Brooklyn Hustle. When I look back on it, like I just felt that we, I, I felt like we. Should, now look back on it, we should have called it that because that's basically where I got it, where I where it's a big part of me. And you know, the Brooklyn hustle, which started when I was like 10 years old. I mean, I've been working some 10, I'm 63, and you know, selling conditions on the beach, my paper route, baking bagels, giving flyers and circus underneath the L when people got off the train, you name it, you know, <laughs> warehouses, catering halls. Like, where did it all begin? You know, I think one of the most important things that, you know, my mom, who really gave me most of my great lessons, particularly in uh, You Gotta Have Balls, that was her favorite line. 
of the second book. But she said, you know, I, I said, why do you think you're such a good marketer? At some point, things are starting to pop for me. I said, because, you know, I like people. You know, I'm a people person. She says, you know, that's bullshit. That, that's, liking people is not going to get you anywhere. You got to understand people. You need to be able to relate, understand where people are coming from, what they're thinking. You have to lead with empathy, compassion. You got to get out of your head, get out of your shoes, be able to put yourself in someone else's. And I think when you can do that, and that's the most valuable lesson I learned in Brooklyn is not about how much money I made in the hustle, but it's really the ability to get along with all walks and talks and likes of people. And once you can do that, once you really can understand where people are coming from, you can see the white space. And such an important lesson because knowing who your customer is is really important, but it's not who you know, what you know, but what you know about who. And I think when you not only can get in someone else's head and know how they think, even though they're not thinking the way you're thinking or looking the way you're looking, it doesn't matter. You'll then understand what they're looking for. You'll understand what they're feeling, what they want to buy, what service they need. And that's how you go kill it. So how did you learn that? Was is, is this part of the whole Brooklyn hustle thing, just being out there and having to make it work in a, in a relatively tough environment? I mean, you, you learn that, you know, I, I think the first, first time I learned it was a hard lesson. I was 12 years old, I had a paper route and I couldn't, I was trying to open up all these new accounts and nobody would buy it. You know, so I was delivering the daily news. I had 29 dailies, 34 Sundays. And, and you know, I, I was trying to open up as many accounts as I could. And in Brooklyn, you had all these big apartment buildings. You know, there's a lot of people that live within a few block radius. I'm thinking I got to be killing it. After like two weeks, I had nothing. I didn't open up <laughs> one freaking account. I mean, I was so pissed. I went home and said, Mom, we, this is... There's no good. I said, there was an old lady who was almost 80 years old. She gets the paper every day and she wouldn't get it delivered. I said, we got to move out of this neighborhood. My mother's like, yeah, stop. <laughs> and you're stop 12, 12 years of age, Brandon, at this point. 12, yeah, 12. years old. Oh, said, sit down. Stop selling. You want to fill yourself, forget yourself. You got to start serving. Be a solution-based business person. I tried to get my arms around that at 12, but I knew it was something important. How did so she I'm, work I'm, that out? I mean, how did she know that? What, what, what was her story then? Because that's interesting. Oh, my, in my, my mom was an incredible businesswoman back in the 60s when women right. were secretaries and nurses. She had her own business and she just knew. We go into right. every store and see, look at this store. This guy's got no balls. Look at him. His spine here is no good. <laughs> look at the way they're dressed. They got no uniforms. You know, it, she had something to say about every business we'd walk into. And, you know, she's a great salesperson. You know, she owned a salon, so she had to understand a little bit about the temperament of a person before she would color their hair, change their hairstyle. And then she was in a travel agent business, so she had to understand how a newlywed couple was thinking, what kind of money they had to go on this big, most important trip, which is your honeymoon. So, you know, I go I go and I start knocking on doors again after my mother hits me with that, stop serving, you know, I mean, stop selling, start serving and solving. And I knock on the 80-year-old woman's door. And I said, ma'am, if there's torrential downpour, snowstorm, uh, ice on the ground, heat wave, an 80-year-old woman, I mean, it shouldn't be outside. If the weather's bad, I will deliver the newspaper every day, no matter what, by 7.30, I'll bring you milk and bagels on Wednesday and Sunday. She says, you would do that for me? I said, I was concerned. You probably could use an extra set of hands. I put myself... Think about it. I put myself in her in her shoes. And she not only got the paper delivered, but she turned me on to the whole neighborhood. I was delivering 199 dailies and 234 Sundays. So when you think about the ability as a 12-year-old to get into someone else's head, 
which is really the most important part of that story. Yeah, I learned how, how solving, serving, you know, all those things were important, but also to be able to get, turn up the volume on the empathy, which I tell people, if you really want to increase your entrepreneurism, you want to be an ace marketer, get out of your freaking head and, and turn up the empathy uh, button. And empathy is what you can get out of your shoes and imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. And when you can do that, that's how you become an expert marketer. And it really is just about increasing your common sense. I mean, think about it, as a 12-year-old, I nailed it. And every deal that I've approached since that day, you know, doing a deal with the Yankees, what's it like to be the Yankees? Well, they have all this, all these game-used items and they're not authenticated. So I went in and we put a plan together, authenticate their stuff and put some order to all these valuable items when these Yankees are winning all these World Series. But every athlete I run into, which is how I've been able to sign some of the biggest names ever, before I start thinking about what I need, I put myself in their shoes because everybody always needs a little help. Everybody always needs a little support. Well, let's let's not let's not jump to the to the punch yet of of your pretty illustrious career because I want to kind of go through it a bit here. But but just to draw a line under what you just said, empathy, and putting yourself in other people's shoes, is that something like when you first did that that amazing act for that woman? How did you feel? Just explain that situation. Did you did, was that like the light bulb moment? You actually saw it for the first time, or was it? Is it just something that when you say get yourself out of your own head, like what I, what, well, what happens is you, it's it's not, it's it's two things. You get yourself yeah. out of your head, but you got to put your back against the wall. Okay, nothing cool. great happens unless you're in a hostile pressure situation. When people come and say, "Oh, I'm pressed," good, good. Oh man, good, because that's the only time anything great happens. So you know, here I am, 29 dailies, not making a lot of money. And I didn't want to go back to my other job I had, which is working after school. I wanted the free time. So I got to make this work. And then in order to make this work, I need, I need to start thinking of some other ideas and other ways to think about it. And I started thinking, well, what was it like to be her? And I think what happens with people is when they see opportunity, they start thinking about what they can get. Mm, I think yeah, every okay. opportunity you approach, you need to think about what you can give. What is the value proposition that you're offering? What can you do for someone? that they can't do for themselves is the definition of value. People don't talk enough about value. Mm. They just think you should buy something just because you're selling it. But if other people have it, what makes you anything different than anyone else? And it's value you can provide, whether it's service, specialty on pricing, volume discounts, or some of the different things you could do for them that may have nothing to do with the product itself. Some of my best deals were added value that had nothing to do with the deal itself, but I knew it was something that the person needed. Got it. So, so a question on that. So you're saying here that to make yourself more valuable, you have to be more of service. I'm saying that to make yourself more valuable, you got to understand what's what's important to someone else and then be able to do it. Got it. You know, what's most important, WMI, you got to figure out what's most important and you got to do it. You got to know who's important, what's important, do what's important for who's important every day. And if you're thinking about your customer, what's important to them, but most people are thinking what's important to them. Me. me yeah it's a huge distinction i think and particularly in the world of business and leadership <laughs> i got right? my rent i got my family oh i got I my bills nobody, nobody cares well also I think about, about that from a, from honestly, a leadership. what i care about is yeah honestly what are you what are you doing for me how are you helping me either save money make money or helping me through my day because it's crazy i'm so busy what can you do to make me look good that's all i give a shit about that's all i care and that's sad but true and now, yes, there's the quality of product, which is always room for it, which could trump everything. If you've got something that no one else has, 
and it's of high quality, that can be very useful for a lot of people. But over time, it still comes down to value proposition, you understanding what I'm about and understanding what I need and providing value towards those needs. But short term, you got a great product, you may get away with it. Got it. So let's transition a little bit into, you know, your first book was all about leadership lessons in the world of sports, as I understand it. How do you how do you take the world as well? I'd love to hear some stories here because I've I've heard your stories before as we spoke about before we pressed record. But what are some of the things about sports and the way that that um, environment is you know built right, if you like, and how it works that can be manifested across other leadership lessons, particularly in business? I think leadership is first of all very very complicated, and you know yeah. first you have to differentiate between complicated and complex. As a leader, you know, there's, and also the difference between leadership and management is always talked about. And, you know, you got to have a vision, you got to have a view, and you got to be able to take that view, even when a lot of people aren't agreeing with it. You got to be able to sell it in. I think leadership, you know, the root word of leadership, Lee and Durr, is a pathfinder. Back hundreds of years ago, Lee and Durr was an Indonesian word. And, you know, if you had a tribe, you would lead your tribe to someplace safe. You lead your people to some place where they can be, you know, be able to find food, water, whatever. And I think that a lot of leaders, one of the most important things that doesn't get talked about is how do you create a safe environment for your people where they know they're good and they're safe and protected? That's a big part of leadership. Most people will talk about leadership and think about vision. They'll think about thinking ahead, getting people to see stuff that they can't even see. So I, I talk about that. And I think faith, being able to see something be able to look at something, even though you can't really physically see it, is really important, which that's generally the case with a lot of leadership views is you're trying to get people turned and twisted into a direction that they can't see. And hopefully they're trusting you, not because they have to, but because they trust you and want to. So as a leader, getting your people to trust you and want to follow you, not because they have to, but because they believe in your vision, is one of the biggest obstacles in leadership and I think when people get the corner office, they think just because they're the boss, they got the big office that people should automatically follow their direction and do it. And it's another <laughs> short-term play. It's another short-term uh, play. No, absolutely. And I, one thing I'm interested in particularly is the whole sport thing. I often say that there's a purity about watching leadership in in a match, right? Or watching the manager. I'm in the UK, right? You, there, there was a um, fa fantastic example of like the manager who, you know, puts the team on the on the pitch right the best player may may be um you know the the the, the striker but they're not the captain uh the person who's the highest paid player might not necessarily be the person who's been there the longest if someone's not performing you know they're out right you know and if the team's not delivering to a goal to an objective but then when you get into the world of business sometimes it kind of gets lost like people hold on to people for too long. They put people in the wrong seats. They make up excuses. They create all these things. What, what's your view on that? Because, I mean, do you share my view on the fact that on the on the sporting field, there's a purity around leadership that just seems to get lost in other areas? I think it's complicated all the way around. I mean, you know, in sports, you're dealing with a lot more egos. You're dealing with a lot of stuff that unless you're on the field sometimes, you're dealing with a lot of stuff that you can't control. Where in business, I think a lot more of the things in leadership you can't control. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that gets confusing is that with leaders is they start dabbling and messing around with managing. And you got to be careful not to do too much mm -hmm. managing if you want to do a lot more leading. And I think when you start meshing the two of them together, sometimes it works out, but in the longer run, it doesn't. So 
Chris, again, you know, the managing is making sure that the things that you are supposed to do is being done. You're guiding people to the point to make sure they're doing their job every day. You're, you know, you're giving the people the empathy and, and you're giving the people the compassion that they need. But leaders are thinking way past all that. And I think to do a great job with leadership, you're thinking ahead. So a guy who's managing a baseball game sometimes is not bringing in certain players because they know in the long run they need those pitchers. They don't want to wear them out. And they're willing to take a loss today in order to have a bunch of wins tomorrow. Whereas the manager's thinking how they get the game won today, figured out how to best use and, and get more runs than the other team or more goals than the other team. And I think they got to differentiate those two things. And it's hard, which is why leadership sometimes gets misunderstood. Why isn't he putting that in? Why is he spending the money today? Why is he bringing somebody in to help us? <laughs> because in three months, we're going to be over budget and then we're going to have to start firing people. That's why. But a manager says we need that help today. And so you have that kind of the two kind of working side by side. And as a leader, you got to be careful not to start crossing over too much into managing because it'll definitely be better in the short term. But in the long run, you'll be flat. Yeah, I had an experience once years ago. I was on a um, a leadership course at a corporate company I was working with, and they had this thing where they they took a few of us onto the top of a hill, and we had to direct people at the bottom of the hill with literally binoculars and things like that. And there were things that we were allowed to say and things that we were not allowed to say. And the whole context was exactly your point. Sometimes when you're leading a business or a company or whatever it is, you have to make decisions and you haven't got the time or and sometimes you just can't say everything that's happening around how that decision was made. But the people on the ground don't know that and they're judging you. And they're going, well, hold on. It's so obvious that this, this, you know, that should be the right decision, but they don't know that you might be looking the longer term view. And I have never heard of it in terms of it being explained as the difference between leadership and management, but I get that. And that's why leadership is difficult, right? As you said, it's complex and complicated. Well, you know, complicated, you, know, you sit a few people around a table, you can figure it out smart enough, complex, you know, you're going to have to sit back and, and really go through some processes to get complex figured out. There's a man, there's a, there's a, there's a captain on a boat. Uh, hundreds of years ago and, and he's you know he's steering his ship and they're going over, over across the ocean and uh, one of his mates comes up and says captain captain there's a pirate ship that's got a hundred pirates on there and they're approaching our ship they're going to be coming on board what should we do he says go get my red shirt right now he goes and gets the red shirt he puts it on the men they fight off these pirates they end up killing most of them and they end up going away and they win the battle and he says captain you got to explain to me why the red shirt he says well, in case I get shot or a bow and arrow hits me, I don't want to see the men see me bleeding. Then they'd be fear and they'd be scared, and I don't want them to see that. Okay. About two weeks later, Captain, Captain, we got a problem. There's six pirate ships surrounding us. Each one of them will have 100 men on there. What should I do? Go get the brown pants. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes leadership is not easy. And sometimes it is about not necessarily showing your vulnerability and some of your much that you're nervous. And then sometimes it is sharing that. And I think a big part of leadership is being real with your people, but also in some cases, saving them from seeing all the reality and kind of putting up a little bit of a blinder. When I was owned by a huge company uh, years ago, uh, a $30 billion company, I would never filter down all the insanity that this company is requesting me to do and all their paranoia about this and that. I would never filter it down. People would, they wouldn't be able to handle it. So, um, you know, I, I had to put on the brown pants or the red shirt every now and then. <laughs>
it's one of those stories I'm not going to forget. And none of the, the listeners are not going to forget that either. I think Brandon, um, how did you get into the world of sports? Oh, well, firstly, why did you get into the world of sports? I mean, I was always a sports nut. I mean, before it was popular to be a sports nut as, as you know, there's so many fanatics now, but you know, I got into the world of sports by accident. I was really a restaurant hotel guy. Um, I had a couple of, well, I, I, I was in the sports bar business, which was only two sports bars. When that's time, when I got into that business, we opened up one of the first big sports bars, but you know, I just met a lot of athletes and, and I couldn't find my way on the restaurant thing that was suitable. So I said, let me try this thing where a lot of people were calling me up asking me, you know, can you get me an athlete? Can you get me this? Can you get me that? What's funny is, you know, I started my restaurant. I really started my career that really took off. I opened up the hard rock and uh, I did my oh, training. Right. Hard. So I did the hard rock uh, training in London, the original one, not the one yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's so bootleg. But if you ever went to the one on Hyde Park, it was small, 200 people online. It was amazing. So, you know, I met a lot of athletes through the hard rock and I, and I worked for Hyatt hotels and, and I, I started the sports thing because people were just asking me to get them players and it just seemed to kind of spiral. And not a lot of people were even doing that, you know, getting an athlete or a celebrity back in the late eighties was not a big deal. And there wasn't a big fee associated with it. Nowhere near what it is now, which is completely blown up, which we knew one day it would be. And uh, it certainly has. Were you representing sports um, stars as an agent or was it more across the media side? Just ex explain exactly how Steiner sports. Yeah, it was funny. Started. When I started Steiner, it was like none of the agents wanted to do the marketing. It wasn't that big a business. They just didn't want to lose the contracts. So I sent out thousands of letters with surveys to athletes asking if I could do their marketing. And I got back like 80 responses. Yes, a few hundred no's. Took what I could get and went out and started calling companies up and saying, I got some ideas. I think I can help you grow your business through the use of athletes and sports. And I've been doing it 35 years later. I mean, there's nobody, if you have a company that's growing and you really want to do something that's a little unique and you're in some competitive uh, situations with some competitors, like I'm the guy who come in and make a difference. I mean, I know how to use athletes in ways you've never thought of, but I've been doing it for 35 years. But back then, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just calling up as many companies as I can. You have a trade show, you're doing any PR, Maybe I can get you some uh, special gifts to get, you know, for your salespeople to use the lead behind. I was just coming up with ideas off the seat of my pants. And then some of them actually started to stick. I mean, some just started to work. And uh, so I started Steiner Sports. Uh, I'm not at Steiner Sports anymore. You know, Collectible Exchange is a new company. But Steiner Sports was a marketing company that marketed athletes. That was what people don't realize. That was a seven, eight-year company before I even started doing the collectibles. Wow. Okay. And, and you must have, you must have met some amazing athletes through that. Was it mainly based in, in the sort of New York, Brooklyn area? No, no, no. I met them all. I went out and, 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 and there was no athlete off. There was no athlete that I wouldn't approach from Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, Emmett Smith, Roger Staubach. I mean, oh, it, wow. it was, oh, there, you know, Pele. I mean, I, 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 used to, I used to call Pele. It took me like a month to get him on the phone, you know, trying to get him for this company. Like there was no athlete off limits. And back then there was no computers, no Instagram. So you had to really dig down deep to get an athlete's home phone number or figure out how to get a hold of them. But uh, I'm the master tracker people down, although it's a little easier now with social media. It's better, back to the uh, the Brooklyn hustle again, right? Exactly. You know, tracking <laughs> there, people um, down. I was going to say, is there, a, um, is there a particular marketing campaign or activity that stands out? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's many, but one it's that so you're many. particularly proud of? 
I think that you got, I think we got balls is probably one of my famous ones. Uh, is your guy faking it is another one where we send out an Instagram promotion to women that said, is your guy faking it? And it was like that little play on words. And because, you know, it's so hard to get men gifts. So it was this campaign where you'd send out, and we still do this campaign, believe it or not, where you send out an email, is your guy faking it? And say, tell us your guy's favorite athlete sport and a price range. And we'll come back with five amazing gifts. Because women are great about buying themselves gifts. They can buy themselves stuff all day. They love shopping. But they, they, one of the things they feel bad about is buying their guy or their dad, their husband, their boyfriend a gift. And we, so we thought that would hit a soft spot. The, you, the, we got balls. Was you know, My warehouse guy came into my office one day and said, you know, Brandon, we got a problem. We were overstocked on balls. And Steiner, at the time, my old company had, you know, tens of thousands of signed baseballs. That was like our big thing. Uh, it kind of still is really with collectible exchange. So anyway, I said, we got balls. So I went and got a billboard and I put a picture of a whole bunch of signed balls on that. said, we got balls. And then the next campaign was a really kicker because my guy came back a month later. He goes, you know, we're really moving our balls. That's funny, by the way. And, uh, <laughs> but we still have a problem because we got big balls too. Like, you know, we have basketballs, football. So I put up another billboard. We got big balls. So the first billboard on the highway is we got balls. Then the second one was we got big balls. And then I was just, so that, that, you know, and definitely we're moving balls. Like, you know, and, and I just think, you know, listen, people are really sensitive about their balls and, and, and people do like their balls because that's something that everybody collects. But I was thinking everybody's got to have a place to put their balls. So I created this whole line of cases to put your balls in. So the third billboard on the highway was we got balls, we got big balls, we got a place to put your balls. Because I knew that it was important where you put your balls. And uh, yeah, that really a, got everybody's attention. And that was one of my bigger campaigns. That did there's, really there's a little well. bit of a link back here to what your mum was saying, though, about you've got to have balls. Was, you know, yeah, that's right. Wasn't that her line? <laughs> exactly. My so you ended up turning that into you a... Balls. Now, when you got to have balls, what my mother meant was be fearless, no, be tenacious, <laughs> don't stop at mediocrity, don't just settle for success. If you're going to go do it, be the best that ever was. And in order to do that, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. But don't call, don't start crying about your hardships if you want to be really great one day. And all these people, look at these people, they have a chance to be great, to be the best restaurant in the neighborhood, to be the best store. In the, you know, and they, they, they're they lazy. They didn't want to do it. Do you have that's some what, principles? That's what you got to have balls is about. No, I got that. I got that. I think it's quite interesting how distinct it, it ended up becoming one of the best marketing campaigns for you as well. <laughs> Even though I can well, see can it's a see, live there's philosophy. A, there's, a TED, there's a TED talk I did. If you go on YouTube, look up Brandon Steiner, Syracuse, you know, it's, it's a good TED talk. It gets a lot more detail because, you know, I've sold over $50 million of dirt, tens of thousands of bricks. I've sold more grass. And this is before grass was legalized. I mean, grass was the field, the field. We'd lift the grass up from the fields, freeze dry it and sell it. I've sold a lot of unusual things, you know, over time, along with some really outstanding, real true collectibles as well. But I think people know me as a guy that's going to have fun with the collectible business and created a lot of really cool products that are now considered to be collectibles. So let's talk about that a little bit more in detail. So you've got the collectible exchange and have you still got the Steiner agency as well? Is that part of that? Yeah. The Steiner agency is still the same agency. I started with Steiner back at the beginning of the late eighties which, you know, we just book athletes, book talent, and move talent all over the country. And I still love doing that. So kind of what I started with. And the collectible change is a challenge. We have 150,000 items on there. People can go on that site and buy and sell. 
And I think there's just a point in time when there's a lot of people that are now sitting with a lot of collectibles and we're giving them a really upscale, cool place to sell their stuff. And given my name and my vision about that with authentication, clarification, verification, these are the things we're offering that maybe some other sites like an eBay doesn't offer. And so far, so good. Yeah, so uh, really what sort of stuff up. can people, if, what sort of stuff can people get if they go there? Everything. Everything. I was going to say, you Every, talked about grass before. <laughs> I mean, anything, anything autograph, balls, football, soccer, everything. I mean, it's just crazy what people have been saving up all these years. Now it's up on the site and every day more stuff goes up. I mean, every day more people put stuff up every day. You know, some some guy says, oh, man, I got all this stuff that my father left me and I'm like 80. I got to get rid of this. I mean, it's on a day that my phone doesn't ring with somebody's collection that somebody's trying to sell this, sell that. And then there's not a day that goes by somebody's looking for something. What's fun about this particular part of the business is that I'm seeing stuff that I've never seen before. You know, it's not like I'm going to sit down or producing a hundred signed balls of something, which sometimes we do, but I'm seeing a ball from 50 years ago. I'm seeing some really, really cool artifacts that, um, you know, are so busy doing my thing. I had no time to go look at what some of the other people had. Are you, are you a collector yourself, Brandon? Do you like sometimes yeah. see stuff that comes in and go, I'm taking that? You think? Yeah. I mean, well, I, I can I, see I, the back I'm of your wall's get... got a few things there. So I'm thinking you must be collecting. <laughs> I got issues. I mean, I have a lot of issues with collecting stuff. I mean, I've collected everything as a kid, tickets, stubs, everything, autographs. I mean, I'm trying to unravel out of it, which is one of the reasons why I started Collectible Exchange, because I had like 8,000 things in my house. 8,000. Took oh me like six months to organize it. So, we're, you know, that's a big part of Collectible Exchanges. My wife, who's extremely happy about this new business, like get this stuff out of my house. So I'm unraveling out of the love to have stuff mode. And I'm loving helping other people get what they want and helping them dissolve, which is to them, some of these people are a headache because they picked up through an estate, you know, their dad's stuff. And I'm helping them dissolve that stuff so they can put that money to good use. Right. And I'm getting some of the real collectors, the things that they never thought they could find or have. Love it. So you've done a whole heap of different things. Um, what's most important to you now? Well, the most important thing to me now is the same thing that's most important to me all the time, which is my my wife, uh, my kids. You know, it's everything. I mean, that's the biggest success that I've had thus far because you know, I'm still married after 35 years. My kids like me. Um, they they <laughs> that's keep a me win. around. That's uh, a win. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big deal to me. And, uh, you know, my wife, she's given me a lot of room to, to follow a lot of these dreams at the same time. We've had a lot of fun and done a lot of things together. So that's, what's most important. And what's most important to me is relationships. You know, I've made a lot of money, but I've made a lot of money be with, with people that I really like and have enjoyed. And I try to now hone in more on these relationships as opposed to trying to find the next one. Yeah. I think that people take relationships for granted and, um, I, I see somebody I like, I try to keep in touch. I try to keep that relationship going because they usually lead to something good. And as opposed to just trying to find something that's, you know, the flavor of the day. Yeah. I love that. Cause I think sometimes people just, you know, they don't go, they, they try and flip around the place, you know, trying to grab stuff. Right. You know what I mean? They're trying to, that relationship there are, it didn't work out in that first conversation. So I'm going to move on and try and get the next thing. Right. So they, they don't go deep enough into stuff. Right. Or, or give enough time to it. I found that, you know, it's funny, I'll share this with you quickly. So I used to work in private equity, right? And private equity is a very aggressive culture. You know, you make a lot of cash, oh, yeah. but it's very full on. Anyway, I, um, I went to a Tony Robbins gig a few years ago and I saw this quote by Zig Ziglar. I've never seen the quote before, right? And the quote was, 
if you help enough people get what they want or need in life, you'll have everything that you want and need in life. Right. Never heard that before. Right. seems crazy. But I remember at that event, I changed my whole belief system based on that. And part of the reason I started the podcast was to share all the different stuff that I'd learned through, you know, financial services to try and help people. And you know what, that's opened up, you know, people we know, friends that we have collectively together, business partnerships. Like it was one of the best things I could have done. And it took me 44 years to work that out. Well, Crazy, right? I love that. And I think that helping people is 50% of the reason why we're on this planet. Uh, the other 50% is to get better and make a difference. So if you're not doing one of the two of those and hopefully both, you've missed the complete opportunity of why you're even here, you know, which is not by accident. You're here to help others, help each other and to get better and to make this place and this world better than when you found it. You know, I think, you know, help as many people as you can as often as you can and expect nothing back, you know, you know, just do as much good as you can. And I think helping people is not a burden. As a matter of fact, it's an opportunity that leads you to sheer joy. I think the most thing that you can find the most joy on is when you help somebody without maybe never even going to see them again or knowing you're not getting anything back. We all do things for people knowing there's a give and get. I get that. But the best thing I do is when I'm able to do stuff and I, I, that person doesn't even know I did it for them. I mean, try doing that on a regular basis and you're, you're, you're going to watch your cup, you know, Spill, spill over yeah and back to the back to the helping people and getting better i just want to end on this one other thing which is i mean think about why you're here i mean there's thousands of species on this planet and none of them are ever going to get better none of them dogs cats rats bears lions zebras not one of these species and there are thousands are ever going to get better you're never going to wake up and you're going to your dog's going to be in the corner having fed itself walked itself and it's reading the New York Times. You're not going to go see the goldfish in the tank going, wow, that's an interesting backflip, or wow, that's a new stroke. <laughs> that they, I mean, these things are, you know, so you think about the opportunity, like, but you think about what we've gone through, even in our lifetime. You think about the amount of things that have happened to us we've been able to overcome. We're built for it. We're built for the conflict. We're built for all the problematic stuff that happens to us. We are, we are ready for that as humans. And it is an incredible gift that we've been given. If you're not taking advantage of the ability to get better, you're wasting the whole opportunity you've been given. And then if you're not doing that, at the very least, spend a good, if you're spending a good amount of time helping others, well, that can maybe be a good substitute. But the combination of the two of them is, is living the best life you could live. Yeah. Help as many people as you can. That's why we're here, especially with the problems that the good Lord is kind of thrown on us he, he gave us these problems but the solution is us helping each other to get through these problems yeah if, i mean if people if people understood that earlier like as i said you know it took me 40 years to work that out you know <laughs> it is what it is but at least i got there at least i got there in the end and and, and you'll find you'll find the joy you know cup you'll you find oh. you run it over that's that's why as a 50 year old guy i look like i'm younger right <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you met me a few years ago, you wouldn't say that. Um, let's finish off with something fun. We, t we touched on this at the very beginning. The bagel. Let's hear that story. I mean, it's really simple. You know, I told you about <laughs> the newspaper story. And it, what's great is that all good things, when you do good quality work, people notice. I think it's so important. It's like, I know things are not maybe going great for everybody that's watching or listening. But do great quality work and do the best you can. And people will notice when you least expect it. 
So I'm delivering a ton of bagels and milk to all these people that I've delivered in the newspaper to. And finally, the guy says to me, hey, would you like to come and help me? I'll teach you how to bake bagels and make them. Now, this is back in the 70s when there were really not many bagel places. So he was baking these bagels for routes around the city, thousands of bagels, and, the, and these cars would come pick up the bagels and deliver them. So at four in the morning when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, I'm deliver I'm waking up, working in the bagel factory, which is right downstairs from my house for three and a half hours, four to seven thirty, seven thirty, I go deliver the newspapers. And I was falling asleep in class, and that was probably a little a little ambitious for a 13-year-old to be working at four in the morning and all that. So I, I went in to quit and he said, Look, my night baker quit. So you don't have to do this in the morning anymore. I just need you to bake a few dozen bagels here and there at night as people come in. And so I started going and taking the night shift. And of course, you're used to being so busy. I was bored out of my mind. My ADHD is kicking. And I started making all these different crazy types of bagels with all these different types of spices and seasonings, bagel twists, bagel flats, you know, poppy and salt, all these different things. And (laughs) one night I tried all these different bagels and underneath of them was all these seeds and everything all the spices that were got all mixed together underneath the trays where i was making these bagels and i just threw everything on there that's how we got the everything bagel oh, and, wow. and, I, and it's far before you know, <laughs> there's a lot of other cool bagels that have been invented after like the pump you know the uh the pumpernickel twist and the cinnamon raisin and there's been some really cool stuff that came up five six years later but what's great about that story is a when you know if you do good work people notice but also as a 13 year old Back in the 70s, huge recession, but I always had work. Always had an opportunity to do work because the bagel stores were always hiring me. So I had work all the way through the end of high school, baking bagels and making bagels. Love it. Love it. Yeah, and and this, this Australian who now lives in the UK knows about the everything bagel. <laughs> so there you oh, go, yeah. Brandon. I'm going to show you know, here for you, your viewers. You know, I keep the everything bagel here. Yeah, you know, this is my everything bagel uh, here. I, I keep one as a... This is kind of a, a little gift I send out to people that question about the everything day. There you go. I, well, I thought we should finish on that because it's fun. But like just to kind of go back a little bit over our conversation, we've had some very, very good and interesting perspectives on leadership. But more importantly than that, um, some very interesting life lessons, Brandon. As I said, a lot of people that I know don't really think enough about service. They don't think about the idea that, you know, helping people without expectation is actually the pathway to so much more joy and bliss in people's lives and also making a bigger impact. So I want to thank you for sharing that with us today. Well, I'll close with this one quote, and that is, if you want to make a lot of money, stop chasing the money, which is what my mom said. Don't chase the money, chase the things that make the money. You know, really chase down process, relationship building, and, and how to be a better person and ha- increase the value proposition of what you can offer people and everything else will work its way out. Love that. All right, Brandon, if people want to reach out to you and learn more about what you're doing and all that sort of stuff, where can they do that? I'm over the limit on LinkedIn, but I'd follow me on LinkedIn. I love posting (laughs) on LinkedIn. My Facebook page is very active. If you're a sports fan or a collector, go to my Facebook and like my page. Follow me on LinkedIn and go to brandonsteiner.com. You know, you get the books. Oh, if you go to Collectible Exchange, get a copy of my book free. uh, Really? This whole month. Is that that, that cxstuff.com, right? Yeah. That's a good thing because we do that for graduates. When I go and do graduation speeches, I offer the book for free. So now through the middle of June, you go to my site, get the book free and bam. Love it. Okay. We'll make sure we have all of that in the show notes, sir. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Great to be connected um, to you via Randy. And listen, thanks for coming on the show today. It's been fun. Absolutely. Have a great day. I hope to see you in London one of these days on one of my trips over the pond. 
Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.